Hey, what is up, guys? I'm Andy Anis. Uh Back to you for another episode of Pod Slam and Jamma. And on this episode, we have two special guests. Uh, we tweeted the GIF. It feels like the 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 powers of B are finally handshaking. Uh, for they guys have been on the show before, but on this episode, we are joined by uh, the two hosts of the Scott and Hallman podcast. You guys might know. Uh, be sure to check them out on Twitter at sh podcast. And we are talking all things UH buyout agreement to the Big 12. They will be joining officially July 1st, 2023. We'll talk a little bit about the Houston men's basketball team and, of course, expectations for the football team. Stay tuned. You're watching Pod Slam Jam. Jones across midfield. Jones just waiting for somebody. Jones inside the 20 to the 10, and for the fifth time in his career, will not be stopped. Here's Grimes in a pull up three. Oh, Grimes, dead eye shooter. Blair to Patterson in the corner for three. To midcourt. That's Mark at the buzzer. And there you guys are, Dustin, Sam. Thank you guys for joining us. How are y'all doing this evening that we're recording? Hey, doing great. Excited to be talking to you uh, and excited to have just all kinds of uh, exciting stuff going on in uh, Houston Cougar Athletics to be talking about. Yeah, great to be back with you fellas. And obviously, even here in June, no shortage of uh, Houston Cougar stuff to talk about. Yeah, for sure. And of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Dayon Dunlap. How are you doing today, sir? Man, I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you guys for joining us. Finally, feel like it. This, this is like this is it right here, man. I'm excited to have you guys on. <laughs> nice. And I mean, let's jump right into it. So, like I mentioned in our cold open, um, the talk of the town last week was the finally the Big Twelve buyout agreed the agreement with the American Athletic Conference. They will be joining with the Big Twelve, uh, Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF. The American Athletic Conference announced that they had reached a buyout agreement for those schools to leave a couple of months early and join the Big 12 starting July 1st, 2023. So talking into deep specifics of the of the buyout agreement, um, all three schools had reached an agreement to pay just $18 million. That includes a $10 million exit fee. Uh, the remaining $8 million stretched out over a span of 14 years, and this officially um, clears a path uh, that Houston will be in the Big 12 starting July 1st, 2023. Um, I mean, obviously, of course, when those news broke, you had uh, everyone from the individual teams, the men's basketball team, the football team, any other Twitter accounts, uh, you know, going up the chain to the president, obviously, of course, Renew Couture, Chris Pesbin. Uh, just overall, let's start there. What are you guys' overall thoughts on that buyout agreement with the American Athletic Conference? Because I'm going to be honest, when I saw those details, I was I was shocked with just how um, how Houston was able to get it to be $18 million with the American Athletic Conference. Yeah, I thought that was an extremely sweet deal for the uh, the departing schools, um, given that it was only, what, I believe, about $1 million more than what UConn paid when leaving last time. And it certainly felt like this was going to be such a – you know, I don't want to say death blow, the conference is going to continue. It was going to be such a fairly crippling blow to the American Athletic Conference, though, going from being clearly the sixth best conference to being very much up in the air who the sixth best conference is going to be going forward, that you you would have expected the American to be more punitive this time and getting its last, you know, 
as much money as it could the last time it had these valuable properties to, you know, try to extract money from. Um, so for, yeah, I mean, and to look at it in the way that it's 8 million over what, 14 years or whatever it was, less than a million dollars a year for some definite period of time compared to what the additional revenue U of H is going to be bringing in by uh, being a member of the Big 12. And I believe it came out by the third year, I believe it was, I saw the reporting was this year, that it was a year faster than the last time uh, the Big 12 added schools, that the U of H was getting that full media share from the Big 12. So uh, at that deal, it's an absolute no-brainer. And whoever was uh, negotiating that deal for U of H, probably, or the, the part, the, all three of the departing schools, I guess, uh, probably deserves a, a nice bonus because that seems like a pretty sweet deal to me. Yeah, and I think the only thing I would add is just we knew there'd be a, a big lump sum hit there, and that's the ten million by I want to say you guys correct if I'm wrong. I believe it's ten million by 2025. Is that correct, or is it 2023? 2025. So there's going to be a fair amount up front, but like Dustin said, less than a million a year after that. Like that's that's really good, and that you only play, paid one million more than UConn did three years later. You almost would say that's pretty much exactly with the inflation of money what UConn paid to go to a worse league. I think really exciting if you're a Cougar fan. I can't I can't imagine if you're a fan of one of the AAC schools that's going to be in the league 2023 and after that you're super thrilled about that. But uh, from, from our perspective, I think couldn't really get a whole lot better realistically than what actually happened. Dan, what were your thoughts when you saw it? Um, like we've mentioned across the board, um, I think Houston, it's really a beneficial deal for those departing schools. Yeah, and just like Dustin really touched upon, the money that Houston is going to be get coming in once they join the Big 12, I mean, it's really a no-brainer with with the deal that you guys explained it. So, I mean, really not much to add. I kind of have the, the same thoughts that you did. A good deal for Houston, and I'm just excited for them to go into the Big 12. I know the revenue going to, when they bring in, then when they start winning and excelling even more, they're certainly going to bring in more money. So, so kind of transitioning to the specifics of kind of looking ahead a little bit, but obviously, of course, since they will be joining July 1st, uh, 2023, it's looking more and more like they will join the conference when OU and UT are still in it, at least for uh, one season, which will, at the very least it'll be 23-24. Um, we had Sam Khan in one of our other shows, uh, Folks Talking Sport, and he, he mentioned how um, in all likelihood, those two teams will be there. So obviously, of course, when you think about the Big 12 and just uh, really how long it, it Houston has been trying to get into the Big 12, that's one of the rivalries, especially for, for Houston fans. It, 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 that's the one that draws your attention. That's going to get all the clicks uh, from a perspective of Houston, even if it's for one season, whether it be in football, especially um, – the last time those two football teams played, the last time UT had to come down to Houston, a little bad blood, bad blood or bad blood there. What do you guys have to say about potentially uh, some of the matchups that we could see both on the football field and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the other sports? I would say I'm kind of a cynic in that, you know, obviously right now as it stands, yes, we will be joining with Oklahoma, with University of Texas at Austin for at least some period of time of overlap. And, yeah, I don't doubt. Like Sam Cotton and other people who are much, much, much more in the know than all of us really are adamant that there's a good chance that the Big 12 is going to proceed as a 14-team conference for at least some period of time with the two departing schools along with the four uh, arriving schools, the Cougars, UCF, Cincy, and BYU. I'm of the mind that this, you know, this overlap isn't going to happen, or I'm not going to believe it's going to happen until 
we see an official athletic schedule come out that has Oklahoma or the Longhorns on it. And we've the two of us have had people, or at least one guy who we know is fairly close to what's going on at one of the departing schools, be pretty adamant that, no, one day we're going to wake up and we're going to see the news that the Longhorns and Sooners paid up enough money to go away from the Big 12 before eight of the members came in. But you know, I'm not saying Sam Khan is more credible than the guy I was just talking about. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm someone who's been a Cougar fan long enough and seen the way that that school in Austin has just, with a few exceptions, really steadfastly avoided anything involving the Cougars. That, yeah, I'll believe what I see it. And apparently Oklahoma, during the 2016 non-realignment, Oklahoma was apparently a pretty big voice uh, against the Cougars joining the Big 12 in time. So, it would obviously be incredibly exciting whether the Cougars have to go to Austin, whether, you know, the Longhorns, my sincere hope is that if this does happen, that they make the Longhorns play at TVCU, I wouldn't be surprised that game happens and ends up happening at Reliant just because of what would probably be a much better windfall for the Cougars to do that. But yeah, you can't, you can't find a more exciting hypothetical matchup for this fan base and facing that school in Austin again. And I think as much as they have that air of superiority in that program, in that fan base, I think that game would have some juice. If you gave Longhorn fans of some dedication, some truth serum that that game with U of H has a lot more juice than a lot of the big 12 games they've been playing on an annual basis. So obviously would be very exciting to have it happen again. I don't need to say anything about Oklahoma's program. It's been one of the premier ones in the sport for all of our lifetimes. And then some, but I'm also kind of where I started cynical that it's going to happen. I hope I'm wrong. I hope in a couple of years, I look very silly here and that we've played a full season and gotten to get some tasty conference matches with the Sears Longhorns, but not terribly optimistic that's going to happen. Yeah. The news that Houston is joining the big 12 did not entirely like disabuse me of my Cougar related, just like conference realignment pessimism. So I'm kind of in the same boat with Sam. Yeah. If I was setting a betting line right now, I'd set the betting line in favor of, yes, the U of H will play at least one conference football game against uh, Oklahoma and or the school in Austin. But, like, man, I just, I'm just i not going to really believe it until uh, until I see the game is on the schedule. Um, but, you know, I, I, I also try not to get too bogged down in that thought. That doesn't really – it's not keeping me awake at night in any sense because, you know, that would be so much – it would be so much fun to have a game with the Longhorns and, you know, Reliant or TDECU. Um, just like it was so much fun to have that game with uh, Oklahoma and TDCU. Um, but that's that's a short-term thing. You know, the long-term thing is is the conference move is going to be just an unbelievable thing regardless. So that is, as much as it would, uh, it's, it's tantalizing. It's tantalizing to get that game against the Longhorns. But I try not to, to focus too much on it because just everything else about the move is, is so unbelievably uh, the opposite of what has been the case for the Cougars uh, conference-wise for the last uh, few decades, that it's, it's good enough on its own. Yeah, I just add also that I'm obviously, regardless of that, whether we ever play those two schools or not, that the Big 12 move is an incredibly exciting one and offers many really awesome matchups, even if we never see those two schools on the conference schedule. Dayon, anything else you'd like to add? No, not really. I, I'm more like Sam. I, I, I don't really believe it's going to happen until I actually see it. And once I, just like Houston, I don't think Houston's going to stage the duration. Once the kind of news kind of broke, I was like, the money is going to come up. They're going to find a way. And just like UT and OU, I think they're going to do the same thing. I, I think I agree with both of y'all on that for sure. 
Man, that that is interesting. I didn't know that I was on a panel. Apparently, I'm an optimist because I I don't know. I feel like it'll happen even if it's just for one season. Um, especially the closer we get, um, I'd say if if they are gonna leave, you'd imagine it has to be relatively within the the coming weeks where they reached buyout agreement. I don't think. I think the the closer and closer we get to even just this fall. Um, it becomes much, much less likely. But I, I can see what you guys have said, where you guys really won't believe it until the, the conference schedule gets released for 2023 and you can, you know, on paper, see that it, uh, they'll match up. So that'll be interesting. Um, I, believe, I believe it is still the case that in, like, 21st century conference realignment, no school has ever spent two lame duck football seasons in a conference that we're already leaving. So it would it would be, it's worth noting, it would be unprecedented if those schools are, are still around when we get there. But fingers crossed. For sure, that 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 would be certainly a case. It would certainly be interesting if I if I had to put money, I would say that I still think at the minimum they'd be there twenty three, twenty four. I don't. I kind of agree with you guys where it says by the time twenty four, twenty five rolls around, they they'd probably have reached a buyout agreement. Um, one thing I did want to bring up that uh, I believe Sam, you mentioned it, where um, going back to Houston and once they become members in the Big Twelve, uh, they will become or they will be receiving the full TV revenue from the Big 12 come 2025, which would be the year um, when OU and, and UT are set to leave now. But that's when the next uh, money, the next contract, TV contract kicks in for the Big 12. That's huge, um, like you mentioned, because um, even just partial, I believe uh, this past season, they got like 8.5 million payout from the American Athletic Conference. Um, just them not being full members, that's going to jump up almost by 10 million. It's going to be roughly 18 million where they'd be getting just in, in the 23 24 season uh, before they even become full members. So that's certainly going to be huge that they only have to wait two years before they get that full share of money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think simply you're not just going to see the TV revenue bump as well. I mean, obviously actual like attendance to games. I think people are surprised when they find out that actual game attendance doesn't represent an enormous pie of an athletic or slice of the pie, excuse me, of the athletic department budget. But that's gonna you're gonna see that go up tremendously just because you're getting matchups like Baylor and Texas Tech and TCU and it's something that I does something that I've talked about a few different times when people I think usually outside U of H have asked us about the Big Twelve move and what that means to us is just having those kind of compelling matchups. So I think you're gonna see the revenue go up there as well. You're gonna see U of H be bringing in a lot more just by virtue of having those games on the schedule and the big sports. Yeah, and I think with that, you know, you've heard Dana Holgerson, you've heard other coaches from other sports talk about the, you know, the investment that that needs to still come from the athletics department in terms of funding these sports, uh, you know, with all the, the the things that are expected of, of being a, a Big 12 school. And U of H has made a lot of extremely important, extremely impressive progress in that area in the last, you know, decade, but the, the, there's still uh, work to be done. And so... Um, it is certainly the case that, you know, there, there's going to be need for that uh, for that extra uh, TV revenue coming in because, you know, I, you know, it was on Twitter that the the, uh, the the women's basketball team had one of the lower you know operating budgets in the American. And if you if you're going to go be successful at women's basketball in the Big 12, you're not going to do that on you know bottom half of the American athletics budget. So I think that there's going to be a lot of sports that are going to need uh, some more investment. So hopefully that money, you know, you, I certainly trust uh, Chris Pesman and the whole team to make sure that money is going to all the right places because uh, yeah, you're going to be competing on a very different level uh, than they have been up until this point. 
I think it was Pesman that said it. The work doesn't end with us joining the Big 12. The, the work actually begins here. For sure. And that's going to be the perfect segue for us. Uh, we're going to circle back and we're certainly going to touch on um, not only just the, the revenue expenses, but a little bit about the women's basketball team coming up in our third segment. But we'll leave it there. Coming right up on Podstime and Jamma, we'll transition over to uh, talking more about the men's basketball team in a recent article with the athletic Kelvin Sampson spoke about a lot of things from Marcus Sasser to obviously the, the all eyes wants to see the new recruit in Jarris Walker. So we'll discuss more about what Kelvin Sampson told the athletic coming right up on pot slime and jamma covering your UH athletics. Yeah. Continuing here on pot slam and jamma. With our, our hosts finally getting to do it, the show together. I know we were out the first couple of times, but moving on to the men's side, specifically basketball. And like Andy mentioned, it was a really well written article came out of Athletic Coach Sampson getting into really detail about a lot of players. But I mean, let's let's start with Marcus. He really talked about the what's the next level for Marcus Sasser to get to. Everyone knows how good he is as far as scoring, but he talked about letting him go to the next level as far as playmaking, especially in the pick and roll. What you guys think about not only Sasser, but him and his development in next season to get to ultimately first round draft pick? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it's exciting to think that there is still another level uh, for Marcus to reach because he, he was already, you know, pre-injury last year, a, a pretty dang good player on both sides of the court. So, uh, you know, the idea that there's still he still has the ability to you know, develop into a better playmaker for others, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in addition to knowing that he's just going to be one of the best scoring guards in the country. He's going to be one of the best defensive guards in the country. Um, you know, you know, I've seen, I've seen non U of H biased outlets calling him the best guard in the country uh, heading into next season. And that praise certainly feels pretty warranted. So uh, yeah, don't, don't hate it. It's not a bad situation to be in to have maybe the, you know, probably the odds on favorite best guard in the country uh, coming back on your team next year it's, it's uh, something I'm not used to as a U of H fan, but I'm quickly uh, uh, getting getting used to the idea. And I think the dynamic between him and Jamal Shell will be very interesting. The athletic article that you alluded to from CJ Moore mentioned this, but before Sass's injury, you would start to see Samson figure out that, hey, I got something here with the uh, Shed and Sasser lineups. And it kind of, I think at the start of the season, the last season, Samson really envisioned it being you know Marcus Sasser's team kind of as a point guard and your high volume scorer and I think realize that Sasser can be a playmaker but that he could pair him with Shed and that's kind of the tantalizing what if about last season is that you know, we saw what Jamal Shed became what you know what awesome stuff would he have done alongside someone who I think before he got hurt was on pace for an all-American kind of season but that's interesting to me is that you mentioned it and Samson said in the article of the athletic he's still you need to see maybe Marcus Sasser develop more as a playmaker. He's already a great spot-up shooter. He's a guy who clearly before last season added some stuff to his game, but I think if Marcus believed he was going to be a pretty high draft pick, I don't think we'd be talking about it right now. If Marcus didn't believe he could get better in some way, he wouldn't be you know, coming into the season uh, playing college basketball. So he would be you know, going to be a professional. He would be you know leaving early like uh, Armani uh, Brooks and Nate Hinton, both guys who I think have had nice little starts to their professional careers. But that's a really exciting thing to me is to see Jamal Shedd, somebody who's obviously bulldog point guard, already was at an all-conference level last year, despite really last year seeing his first significant on-court action. Seeing how he can develop and seeing how he can develop alongside a guy with Marcus Sasser, who's already proven to be a plus scorer and yeah, I think has a lot of potential still to be unlocked 
as a playmaker. It's going to be a very interesting dynamic. And really, I think we've seen some incredible defensive teams in this program in recent memory, about you know, the best you could really draw up in terms of, you know, a profile the last five or six years, what Cougar basketball has done on that side of the court. And this might be the best of that group because of what Jamal Shedd has shown, because of what Marcus Sasser has shown. I think that's going to be really exciting to me to see how those guys, even Tremont Mark, who you know, I, could probably, I could probably talk about in 10 or 15 minutes about the interesting stuff Tremont Mark showed us in his first season, some change of college basketball, the tantalizing what if with him too, uh, missing most of last year. So really exciting guard group. Uh, you know, Jamal Shedd being, you know, being someone who last year showed himself capable of being your floor general, capable of being the tip of the spear defensively alongside a guy who I think, uh, and I'm not being overly optimistic in saying I think has legit All-American uh, potential. A guy you can pencil in certainly on every publication's preseason All-American team alongside, I believe, the conference's best defensive player in Shed. Dan, this is for you in, in that athletic article. Uh, Calvin Sampson kind of talked more about how really where he wants to see Marcus Sasser grow is kind of in the pick-and-roll situations, especially as a playmaker off the pick-and-roll, because I believe he, he talked about how when he was in the NBA, uh, the, the two – you know, if you can do these two things at a high level, you're going to be a pretty good player. And that's executing well on the pick and roll and playing defense. And that's kind of the, the talent that he's kind of challenging Marcus Sasser. And it's something that, that Sasser himself said after he announced he was coming back, that he he wants to grow as a playmaker. What say you about that? Yeah, I think it's brutal honesty because like Sam just said, in transition and bringing up Jamal Shea is going to have the ball in his hands. But when the game slows down – you play more in a half court. That's when you're playing the pick and roll. And Coach Sampson said in that article, one thing he learned from the NBA is playing pick and roll for both sides of the court and how much of the court it opens up. And so in the half court with Sasser, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he said, I think it was 91 possessions. He only had eight or nine assists in which it's not all about scoring. Sometimes it's just making the right play in which being the threat that he is and having now more athleticism like Jarius Walker and some of the other players that's going to be on the court with him is going to open up the floor even more. And then back to Sam's point as far as Jamal Shedd, I think it's going to take his development up another notch because you look how he was able to penetrate and create for Josh Carlton and Fabian, really the whole team. Now when you got a bona fide shooter on the other side of Marcus Sasser is going to open up the floor for him. And then Tremont Mark is going to add more playmaking and more scoring. I think offensively they're going to be really well, but I think the pick and roll is going to really be scary because he mentioned Jared Walker. Who, who he mentioned is the second best passer already. He's only had him for a short time already. And Coach Sampson doesn't really throw out empty praises. For he's saying he's close behind Jamal Shedd, that really means something. And so we've had stretch fours, but Coach Sampson said this isn't a four we had who can create in space like that. So I'm excited to see the pick and roll dynamic with Marcus along with Shedd and J.S. Walker and, and um, Jamal Mark as well. Yeah, that's I think perfect. Oh, go ahead. Not, not going to be too many teams in the country. I don't think they're going to have four that talented playmakers who are that good with the ball in their hands as those four guys that you just mentioned. That is just the amount of things that you can do offensively when you've got four guys that are that talented getting their own shot, that talented potentially creating for others, that talented handing the ball. It's just uh, a coach's dream to have that kind of uh, arsenal available. And crazy that you have so many guys in this roster outside of Shed who are secondary ball handlers, secondary creators, guys like Sasser, uh, Tremont Mark, Malik Wilson, who comes in from Texas Tech, has done a, a fair amount of point guard in his career. And Samson, with this guy being in camp with him for a week or two, it's just like, oh, yeah, he's the second best passer on this team behind an all-conference point guard. Absolutely wild stuff. And like you said, that's 
that's high praise coming from Samson. Samson doesn't throw that out that empty stuff uh, ever. Well, that's the perfect transition because, um, like we mentioned, uh, Walker, he's the new uh, shiny toy, for the lack of a better phrase. Um, and he's already, like you guys have mentioned, he's receiving a lot of praise uh, from Coach Calvin Sampson. And in that article, the, I like the quote that he talked about him. He said he's just a – I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he said he's still just a tropical storm. Um, he's got a lot of work to do before he becomes a hurricane, but the hurricane is coming, and he's excited to get to work uh, with Walker. And um, – I'll throw this at the panel, whoever wants to take it first, but um, what are kind of, because this is going to be, this is the first five-star recruit that Houston's had um, in years. It's the first five-star recruit they had under Calvin Sampson. Uh, they've been able to to get at a high level without getting those, you know, in all likelihood, who's going to be one of those one-and-done recruits. Um, what are you guys' expectations? What are you most excited for for Injeris Walker and um, I'll leave it at that, and then I'll, I'll have a follow-up um, after after we discuss this. I think the most exciting thing is we've seen this program progress, and I think directly related to this program really progressing from a good top 25 team to a top 10 pencil them in going deep in the tournament kind of team is the development of big men you know, like Fabian White Jr., like Josh Carlton, guys who maybe sometimes don't do the prettiest stuff, but it's a different caliber of big men now then, with all due respect, the guys that were on the team in 2018 and 2019, good good players, guys who really bought into what Samson did, guys who really played a big part in improving this program. But I think you really saw this program take the next level when you saw the improvement from the big men, the ability of Kellen Samson, especially the assistant head coach and guy in waiting, uh, to develop those big men. But Jarris Walker, it's just it's on an entirely different level. I, I looked at it very, very early, but... ESPN's 2023 mock draft had Jarris Walker as their 14th pick and in their little right on said, if he can get his shot a little bit more consistent, if he shows, you know, a bit more of, you know, ability to make shots and, you know, Samson works on his form there at the college level that even though he's a six, seven power forward, we're talking about a guy who could be a top 10 pick. And that's just quite honestly, other than like maybe Quentin Grimes, not a level of player, regardless of position, we've been bringing into this program. And I think what's also really exciting is that something else, Samson, I really loved the, the quote that Andy led with about him uh, turning from a tropical storm to a hurricane. If nothing else, uh, Kelvin Samson is good for uh, a really good quote uh, quite often anytime you see one of these articles. But that when they recruited Jairus Walker and got Jairus Walker to come here, they didn't do it by telling him what he wanted to hear or kissing his butt or anything like that. Samson told him what he needed to do to improve as a player. And that that Jairus Walker took that and was like, yeah, I want to come here. I want to come to this program that challenges me. Yeah, I think speaks well to the young man. And I think it's just another reason of a super long list to be really excited about what he's going to do here. Yeah, I, th I think specifically in the article, the quote was, Kelvin Sampson told Jairus Walker, you need us more than we need you. Which exactly, is, yep. And, and, yeah, and you got if you say that to recruits, you're only going to get the ones that really wanted, that really believe in your development system and that you're really going to turn them into better players and that really seek that. They don't seek a, a program where everyone's going to you know kiss their butt and, and tell them how great they are. And the, I, I think maybe the most exciting thing for me about Jairus Walker is just like to use the cross-sport analogy, like he's not going to get Ed Oliver in the sense that like Ed Oliver was an amazing recruit, was super happy to have him, didn't have the team around him to really like unlock his full potential. You know, if 
Ed Oliver was not playing with defensive line, you know, and again, no, no insult to any of the players that he played with, but like those guys weren't the caliber that of, you know, is what Jairus Walker has around him in terms of a supporting cast. So he doesn't have to do too much as he is still developing from that tropical storm into that hurricane. He's not going to be asked to do too much because he's going to have Marcus Sasser and Jamal Shedd and Tremont Mark and, oh yeah, two guards coming off the bench, two like high, you know, incredibly highly touted freshman recruits that uh, in any other year that didn't involve Jairus Walker signing, either one of those guys would be the like, holy cow, we got this guy, this highly rated recruit who's going to, you know, come in and, uh, and be a really good player for us. So he's not going to be asked to do too much and, you know, expect that uh, by the end of the year, he's going to be doing some, uh, some jaw dropping stuff. Pretty crazy. A quick aside, Terrence Arsenault is a top 40 recruit, a guy who in any previous year, be like, wow, like, I can't believe we're getting players the caliber of Terrence Arsenault. And all of us, we're about 29 minutes in here. We are just now mentioning him. I think that just tells you how, one, good Jairus Walker is, and two, how good the it, it just cast around Jairus Walker and the returning talent you have in this team is. Yeah, one thing I, I did want to mention that they kind of got brought up in that article is, um, you know, you, we brought up the depth at guard. Um, and Terrence Arsenal, he's one of the, the players that, that's going to be in that backcourt. Obviously, of course, Emmanuel Sharp, who's been uh, with the program since January. We still don't know what exactly he's going to bring to the table. But uh, one, of the, one of the other players that kind of gets lost in the shuffle, which is honestly pretty mind-boggling because he was set in the rotation this past year in the Elite Eight run. That's Ramon Walker, yep. who showed that he's just like one of those um, signature Calvin Sampson culture players where he's not going to go in, he's not going to light up the scoreboard, but it always seems like he's going to get you a big charge, he's going to get you a big rebound, and really he's kind of been lost in the shuffle a little bit. Dan, uh, what do you think about how much depth that this team has just in terms of re- really a complete 180 where they were uh, just this past season when they were running in eight-man, sometimes seven-man rotations um, really since January? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a good problem to have, especially that guard depth, but specifically the Ramon Walker, I, I wonder what he's going to be like in rotation because you get these crews. So one thing they're going to have to prove with Coach Sampson is that they belong on the floor. He's not just going to put you on the floor because you're an X amount of recruit coming out of high school. And so specifically to the Terrence and Emmanuel, I, I wonder what the guard rotation is going to look like. He already said Emmanuel Sharp is a scorer. He can score as well as Terrence. He's really good in, in the pick and roll. He's a pick and roll player, primarily scoring. But I, I want to see what those battles are like because the guard depth is going to be a battle and a tough to get minutes, especially with the three trio that we're going to put out on the floor first. And so uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, Ramon Walker, junior guy that Sam and I multiple times last year remarked to each other. I'm going to freestyle on the podcast or in text messages. Like, this guy reminds me of freshman year Nate Hinton. Yep. And just like, and imagine that, 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 your, that your backup backcourt could be sophomore year Nate Hinton, a top 40 recruit in Terrence Arsenault, a top mm-hmm. 180 recruit, what Emmanuel Sharp was, who the strength coach raves about and who Kelvin Sampson is saying could be the leading scorer for this team on some nights. Oh, yeah, and Malik Wilson, who was playing 15 minutes a night for a team as good as Texas Tech last year. That's that's your four guards, four guards coming off the bench. That would be the next best guard group in the American Athletic Conference if that was a different team than the University of Houston. And that that's your guards off the bench. That is... Like Dan said, the definition of a good problem to have in terms of how you were going to find minutes for all those guys. Yeah, I, I, I don't have the answer to how you figure out getting minutes for all those guys, but absolute champagne problems. And I'm sure once we do have some kind of rotation, Ramon Walker Jr. will be part of it. You could just tell yeah. last year, even 
even coming off like a hand surgery, I think in ideal circumstances, I think Samson basically said it, they would have redshirted Ramon Walker and let him, you know, rehab that and not have a negatively affect his shot. And just, you could tell at times he wasn't shooting in any way he was used to shooting, but you had to have him because he was a warm division one rotation guard body when you had eight of those on the roster, eight guys total on the roster. So whatever we end up with, I expect we'll see a fair amount of Ramon Walker next year. I think he proved himself really invaluable to this team down the stretch last year too. Yeah, and I think so, too, to add on to more Ramon Walker. I've seen a lot of his games in high school. I called him, and he's a really natural scorer. And so, like you said, Sam, his shooting motion definitely was affected. I expect him to come back healthy, shoot even a way better percentage. And we already saw what he brings as far as the culture plays, the taking charges, the diving on the floor, the rebounding. That's things like that that Terrence and Emmanuel that I assume is going to have to prove that they'll do in practice before they jump stuff here in the lineup because of their whatever recruits or stuff like that. Yep. Real quickly, uh, the front court, we haven't touched on it that much, but in the article he mentions that, uh, obviously, of course, the injury to, to Reggie Chaney, I think his most recent one was a knee, knee injury that's kind of uh, expected to hold him out, I think, Samson said, till like early July at the the earliest, but that gives um, a lot of opportunity for, we, we kind of already know a little bit of what J1 Roberts provides just in terms of what he's been able to, he, he was averaging like about 15 minutes um, give or take during stretches last season. And, and he's kind of a player where he's going to go in, he's going to go rebound, he's going to be an energizer off the bench. But a couple of uh, the wild cards, and really um, the one that, that Calvin mentioned um, was uh, Javier Francis and, of course, uh, Kieran Powell, who Kieran Powell hasn't really gotten much minutes in the past two seasons that he's been here. And, and now that door kind of opens up for them. I know those talks about potentially um, it had – Kenneth Lofton not stayed in the NBA draft, he would have come in. But now that they don't have um, him coming to Houston, it, it kind of it, it's an interesting situation at the front court because they're losing. They lost their key veterans. Uh, it's going to be the first time in in really over half a decade where they're not going to have Fabian White. Um, they had Josh Carlton last season. Those two guys are gone. So it, the the door is open for someone else to go in, make an impact. Yeah, I think one of the underrated things about last year's team. I mean, I mean. We all watched a fair amount of uh, Houston Cougar men's basketball last year. You just got, after late December, incessantly, oh, who who wasn't playing? And I think one of the underrated things about last year's team that this year's team is going to have to you know, prove is that you had a lot of guys, you know, a lot of age on last year's team, guys like Kyler Edwards, Tajay Moore, and you mentioned Josh Carlton, a guy who was incredibly important to last year's team. Guys with four or five years, six in Tajay Moore's case, of college basketball, under their belt. But, you know, I think other than the obvious Jairus Walker, we've talked about pretty in depth. Lonnie Roberts really excites me. One of those, I think, underrated performances that we forget about in the course of the season, how good he was against Alabama. I mean, that game was a heartbreaker and it was ultimately a game that ended up going in the loss column. But I don't think that the Cougars even stay within double digits of the Crimson Tide on their court. If Lonnie Roberts doesn't have the unreal game he had, in Tuscaloosa, and that wasn't every game for him, obviously. There were you know, plenty of times where you know, it kind of felt like you were playing four-on-five offensively when he was in the court. You know, he, wasn't, he wasn't consistently the Alabama game Wani Roberts over the season, but I remember in the Villanova game, as much as not much went right in that game, I really remember in the second half that one thinking, this team is only going to stay in this game and win it if Roberts is on the floor. I think he just gave you, he gave you a level of rebounding ability that 
and even including the you know blue chip five star guy we just spent a fair amount of time talking about, I don't know if anyone has the offensive rebounding ceiling that Lonnie Roberts has. And if he can, I'm not even saying do what he did in the Alabama game on a night in night out basis. I don't think that's like realistic for any big man. But if he can give you those kind of performances, the more regularity in the floor of his performance kind of raises a little bit. Yeah, I, I think we're talking about a guy who could potentially, you know, potentially make Samson make some difficult decisions in terms of starting Reggie Cheney. I know in the athletic article, Samson said that uh, Walker and Roberts were his fours, but I think we could see him play well enough that you'll be seeing a fair amount of uh, Walker and Roberts front courts when it's all said and done this year. Yeah, I, uh, my my line with uh, Wani Roberts is always that he, he reminds me of Dennis Rodman in the best possible way, which has nothing to do with any of the off-court stuff, but just, just he's a rebounding maniac, plays just unbelievably high-energy defense, just really pesters people, just someone that, as an opposing fan, you're just going to hate playing against him because he's so relentless. Um, and I remember seeing something from Kelvin Sampson in the middle of last year that, like, he said, oh, going into year three in the program, he felt like Wani still had some some room to grow offensively with his game, and he thought that he was going to find another level. I mean, he didn't do much, but, I mean, he didn't look uncomfortable with the ball in his hands either for, you know, someone who was, who was such a just rebound defense first guy who took so few shots. You know, I, I think if they're used to, uh, to, you know, running some motion through the floor, I don't think that's going to entirely stop when when Jairus Walker leaves the court and Wani comes in because I think he's got more ball handling and uh, maybe a little bit of playmaking than we've seen up until this point. But even if not, you still put him out there because he's just that good uh, as a rebounder and uh, and defensively at the four. But uh, kind of like Sam said, I mean, if, if those two guys are your fours and they're only your fours and we did see Wani play a little bit the five, you know, in stretches at times last year, that means that you can only give those two guys 40 minutes a game combined. You might want to give both of those guys 25 minutes a game or something. So I think we it's entirely possible that we see you know, probably depending on matchups, depending on is this a team that's got a real big five that we need to deal with that, you know, we want to put one of our bigger guys out there versus is this a smaller team that we can do this more easily? I think that that, like Sam said, it's going to make Kelvin Sampson make some difficult decisions. Damn, I'll let you Oh, I, just, I realized we t- entirely forgot to talk about either of us, <laughs> Kieran Powell or uh, Javier Francis, who, you know, I mean, I think those guys as well. I'm, I'm really excited to see what they have this year um, and during their second and third years uh, in the program. Two guys that, you know, what little flashes we've seen of them. We've seen just some really exciting athleticism. We've seen some coaches that, like we talked about, don't throw out praise real easily, talking about how exciting those guys are and how much they want to see them develop in the program. So definitely uh, hoping to see some of those guys at the five this year as well. You certainly expect us, uh, the staff to rotate guys at the position, but I think that's going to be uh, a lot of fun. Again, probably no one that gives you Josh Carlton's scoring punch, but given the guards you got coming back, you probably don't need that from the five. You're going to... Go, go back to the more uh, what Chris Harris style uh, five for the Cougs, maybe. I'm definitely of the yeah. opinion that Powell would have played a fair amount if he hadn't been injury redshirting uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and that's something that, that people forget sometimes. He's been um, – this will be his third season with the program. He actually – he redshirted a season ago, and now it, it'll be interesting to see um, entering his third year. I think in that article they actually compared him to, to Chris Harris, so it took him a while before he actually got on the floor uh, for the Cougars. Dayon, I'll let you kind of say the final word in this segment. Anything you'd like to add, uh, whether it be on the front court or just the team in general? Yeah, well, starting with J. Ron Roberts, I think there will be, depending on matchups, him and Jarris Walker playing a lot together, especially with Roberts' rebound, uh, rebound ability and ability just to defend. And it was interesting that um, Sampson said that this is the first year that he's not the little brother. Now he's the big brother. And when you see him play, he seems like he has that 
that motor and, and that good uh, leader mentality, especially to, to play hard and lead by example. So I think the, the matchups and him, just the way he's – if he plays like he plays in the game in practice, where I'm sure he does, he's going to be a good leader and take a next step and, and kind of demand with his play to be on the floor. But with Kyron Powell and Javier Francis, I think I mentioned this to, to Andy before, we've seen flashes – which you really don't really know what they have as far as offensively. I think defensively they've shown they can protect the rim and, and block shots. But I think um, Francis is a really good shot blocker, but I want to see more of Powell. But I think it's going to be by committee. Um, Samson mentioned that in the article. But the front court, um, like one of you guys just said, I think it was you saying, we don't really need front court scoring. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be primarily with the guards. We just need them to chip in here and there. But as far as offensively, make open shots and defend and just play Houston culture basketball. And we're going to leave it right there. Coming right up on Podslam and Jamma, we'll talk more about the Houston football team and we'll talk a little bit more about the other sports coming right up on Podslam and Jamma, covering your UH athletics. Now we're talking football, and football is right around the season. The Cougars are building off momentum, in which on our last episode we talked about could they do what Cincinnati did ultimately, and that's go undefeated, win a conference championship, then potentially get to a college playoff, in which I think the college playoff was a little bit un- um, I didn't think it could happen, to say the least, because of the school – I mean, the, the strength of schedule, I should say. But what do you guys think as far as the momentum going into the next season? What are you guys expecting on the football side? I think the year three of Dana Holgerson, was, it, was, it was good. I think it really changed the narrative around the program. I think they needed to have a good season. I don't think either of us going into last season thought, oh, this is a team that has to win the conference because – we all knew Cincinnati going to 2021, returning most of what was an extremely good team in 2020 and having a schedule. It just it felt like really going into last season, it was Cincy and kind of everyone else. And OK, you know, the schedule wasn't too hard. Show some proof of concept on offense. Show show an ability for Daniel Holgerson to do what he's done many times previously in his career and actually create a good functional offense, which I think by the middle of the second half of last season, we really started seeing consistently really, you know, Clayton Toon to start becoming a, you know, consistent positive playmaker instead of, you know, guys that have one good game and one bad game. And yeah, I really think after that Texas Tech game, you saw one of the very best quarterbacks in the country. I think a really remarkable stat, and I don't think pro football focuses, you know, the Bible of advanced stats or any kind of infallible authority on anything, but for Clayton Toon to go from after the Texas Tech game being one of the worst rated division one quarterbacks. We all watched Texas tech game. I think that was uh, probably an accurate uh, uh, advanced stat assessment of uh, how he did that day at RG stadium to one of the highest rated in one season to have that really terrible data point on his season to still, still be as well rated as he was when it was all said and done on the 2021 season. Yeah. I think tells you how good he can be. So that was, that was a nice reset. I don't know if this schedule. Well, I don't know. I, I feel pretty confident this schedule, even if the Cougars, you know, beat UTSA and beat Texas Tech and run the table in the AAC and then beat whoever comes out for the conference championship game. Yeah, I really think it was a perfect storm, a every circumstance breaking in the exact right way that we could have a non-power five program go to the playoff like Cincinnati did last year. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think an undefeated U of H. I think an undefeated U of H would get a lot more similar ranking as to the you know previous UCF teams than uh, than what we saw from Cincy 
last year, which isn't to say that, you know, if the Cougars are able to get through that schedule with, you know, one or even, I would say two, if it's the right two losses, that it's not a really good season. I think, you know, we know know long-term what the goal is. The goal is for this program to be one that's competitive in the Big 12. The long-term goal isn't to win American Athletic Conference championships because we're not going to be in that league after next year. But, you know, end the season on a high note. I would love to have hopefully the last ever times we play SMU and Memphis at their places be wins. To me, those two are games, certainly in the conference schedule, that really stick out in a couple of, I think, pretty tasty uh, in-state non-conference foes as well. And the uh, Roadrunners, West on I-10 and uh, Texas Tech. Yeah, I think the conference expectations this year should, or the expectations this year should be to compete for an American Athletic uh, Conference Championship with the knowledge that, you know, if you win one of those, you know, you're not going to go to the, the playoff. There's no, Houston doesn't have Notre Dame on its schedule, so they're not going to the playoff no matter what they do. Um, but, you know, that if you, if you, uh, you know, win the American, you have a pretty good chance of uh, going to a New Year's Six Bowl. And that is, uh, for one more year at least, uh, kind of the, the ceiling of what this uh, football team is going to be able to accomplish. Uh, schedule wise but with the knowledge that you know heading into 2023 and uh, onward uh, you know the ability to uh, to get into the playoff if you have the right kind of season and the right kind of team there's no longer the artificial ceiling of uh, not having the the schedule that's going to ever impress anybody like that so um, you know and I, I think the most important thing that uh, that uh, you know Dana Holerson did in, in addition to finally having that proof of concept season uh, last year kind of like Sam said is, is what he did to, uh, to build the program in the offseason, uh, retaining Doug Belk on the defensive side, um, doing a lot of uh, good stuff in terms of uh, bringing in transfers, is bringing in, you know, in terms of also bringing in a uh, high-rated local recruit like Matthew Golden and some of the other guys that he's brought in. Um, you know, we knew we needed to, you know, if, if you want to take the next step and really compete for the conference championship that involves, A, probably Cincinnati not having quite the un, uh, you know, unbeatable uh, you know, Megatron team that they had last year. And also it means addressing some of the, the issues that you did have on an otherwise very good team. You know, the offensive line was still going to be a question mark after losing some guys. You know, they brought in some transfers to shore up the offensive line. Um, you know, you wanted some additional playmakers, a wide receiver that could take some of the other uh, pressure off of Tankdale. They brought in Golden and just uh, a handful, handful of highly talented transfers from uh, for power conference schools at the wide receiver position. So uh, just, you know, really like uh, what this roster looks like heading into next season. And uh, that's why I think there's a very good reason that the expectations are that this team should compete for an AAC title, even in an AAC that's going to have uh, a number of good teams, I think. You know, one thing I, I want to ask both of you, and, and this is a, it, you guys touched on the conference schedule, but I want to focus a little bit on the non-conference schedule um, and, and really the two Big 12 teams that are on that non-conference schedule. Uh, one, Texas Tech, they're going to have to play in Lubbock, I think. The second one versus Kansas, that, that one's going to be at TDCU. Now, when you think of Kansas, that's not going to – at least Kansas football is not necessarily going to, you know, be a marquee matchup and, and attract the eyeballs or anything like that. But uh, I feel like that's um, – that game being at TDCU, it sh- could be a good preview to see what kind of uh, turnout fans would have. Do you think that game might just have a little bit buzz just because of what's coming, or do you guys think it's just like uh, it's Kansas, it is what it is? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much Kansas football is going to get people uh, excited. Of, of all the uh, the aspects of the Big Twelve move, playing home games against Kansas is probably not the thing that's getting people uh, juiced up. Um, I, you know, I'm curious to see what Texas Tech looks like the first year under Joe McGuire. I think that was a really interesting hire, and I'm intrigued to uh, get the close up version of 
what that looks like playing Texas Tech not only this year, but obviously uh, being a conference mate from from uh, now on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Sam. Are you? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not even as a easy as a diehard U of H fan. Kansas is not one of the games I'm circling on the calendar this year. I don't think. I think if you win the two games before, if you beat UTSA and you beat Tech and you beat them pretty convincingly, I think you'll have a pretty. I think you have a pretty engaged. That that's the home opener, right? I'm not getting it scrambled or is Rice the home opener. Uh, no, uh, let me so, quickly double check, but yeah, that supposedly, uh, supposedly I'm an expert here, but, uh, <laughs> nah, that but, um, would be the home opener. Yeah. I think it if you, I, th- I think if you win the first two games over UTSA and tech, who I think will be varying degrees of pretty solid team this year and you win them pretty convincingly, I think there'll be a good atmosphere for that one, but I think that will have as much to do with it being the home opener, probably more to do with being the home opener than it uh, being Kansas. I think I generally agree with Dustin on that one. Yeah, kind of follow up to that, but do you guys think, um, especially uh, that that Kansas game, that Houston kind of needs to to have a statement where uh, they are now is going to be the final year in the American Athletic Conference? Hey, to kind of like send a message. Hey, I know we're joining the Big Twelve, but we're not going there to like just kind of be in the conference. We're gonna we're going there to to be competitive in the Big Twelve. I think it's a, a decently interesting data point in that sense. Like, I think I think if it's a close game. I don't know. I think a lot gets made of one game sample sizes. Like you can, you know, I don't think the Texas tech game last year, for example, was really indicative of what U of H was or really what Texas tech was, uh, if we're being honest, but yeah, I guess it's interesting to see there. I think tech Kansas does have for the first time, probably in a decade plus a decent long-term plan there. I thought, I thought Lance Leipold was a good hire. I thought he did about as much as you could reasonably expect a, a team to do. And I think he joined like, really late in the game after spring ball there. But yeah, I think it would also be a nice statement that, you know, beat Kansas by at least a few touchdowns. It's like, okay, like you said, we're not going to go into this league and struggle with the team. That's been kind of the nail on dead blast football program. The last uh, nine, 10 one years. Yeah. I mean, not to like lump Kansas and Texas tech football together, because I don't think that's fair, but even with Joey McGuire being a good hire, I mean, Tech is probably not going to get picked to finish in the top half of the Big 12 this year, I don't think. Someone can correct me if the, the projections are otherwise. Um, but, you know, I think it is an opportunity, both of those games, really, to, uh, okay, that's that's your temperature check of, uh, you know, where are you and compared to maybe a couple teams in the, you know, mid to bottom tier of the conference. Even though, like Sam said, I think Kansas is maybe not going to continue being quite the level of laughing stock that they have been in football previously, maybe. <laughs> Dayon, is there anything you'd uh, like to add or ask? I think both of those games against Tech and Kansas should be statement wins because both of those teams are always near the bottom of the Big 12. And so if you plan to go into the Big 12 to compete and win and show that you're not going to be the bottom of the bear, then like, I, I agree that you come out and you beat both of those teams. So whether – I don't – maybe Kansas by a few touchdowns, but at least beat Tech. In the last couple of years, Tech has beat Houston, but Houston seemed to turn around a bit and have more momentum than Tech, who's hired a first-year coach. Although it'd be in Lubbock, I think both of those games will be statement wins just from a, in a standpoint going into the Big 12, in my opinion. And it's frustrating because the last two times you played Tech, neither of those teams, I mean, 2018 was the last year Cliff Kingsbury there. They were they were a 5-7 and seven team, and they, I think, actually set a passing record against U of H in that game in 2018 up in Lubbock, which... Dustin and I drove up for that one. It's it's really something when Texas Tech, the program that's synonymous with stupid video game passing numbers, 
sets a record against you. And I think it would just be nice before we become conference mates them to kind of get the bad taste out of the mouth of the last two games against the Red Raiders where the Cougars were, quite honestly, the second best team in both those games. And uh, real quickly before we transition, just in terms of, um, I know you guys mentioned that it, it really the offseason moves that Houston had um, with a, a lot of the transfers that they brought in to, to fill in and in kind of areas that the team needed just in terms of overall depth we added um, along the line, along the receiving core, keeping Doug Bell. Uh, how would you assess kind of really what this coaching staff under Dana Holgerson has been able to accomplish? Obviously, it started off really, really rocky and really, really kind of odd just with the whole De'Ara King situation. Then came the COVID year where, I mean, they, they have the first month of the season postponed um, due to other teams getting COVID. They play for what, like six weeks and then they have another pause. Um, so you kind of chuck that out the window. And then third year, they finally have a, a good turnaround. How what, how would you guys assess what Dana Holgerson has been able to do in his time in Houston? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to give him a, a significantly high grade uh, for the job that he's done up until this point. Um, just I, th- I think the roster rebuild that was necessary when he got here was uh, was maybe more significant than some fans uh, realized. And for him, obviously, the first two years on-field results were were pretty rocky. But, you know, looking past that, the what he did off the field in terms of revamping this roster and even going into to last year, I remember saying, you know, I'm not sure how many games this team is going to win this year, but I do know that the two deep is filled with players that I think are actually ready to take a college field and be positive players in a way that was just not the case the first two years that he was here or, you know, the couple of years before he got here uh, to be, to be quite frank about the matter. So uh, the fact that going into last year, just, it looks like, Hey, it, it feels like he's done everything right in terms of bringing in, coaches that have you know good you know resumes and retaining them for for multiple years and and bringing in guys that have talent you know that look like talented players that can play for you um you know retaining those players retain those coaches not losing a bunch of players you know obviously Derek was uh was one of the exceptions there's a couple of notable exceptions but by and large not having some you know mass transfer exodus when you know you didn't win a whole bunch of games the first two seasons um and just have to have the season he had I think you have to just be really honestly impressed with how he's uh, completely transformed the roster. And then also with uh, the results last year, again, apart from the, uh, the tech game and just kind of knowing that Cincinnati was kind of a buzzsaw. You were, you're going to have to really catch on a bad day and get lucky to beat, Um, you know, other than tech game up front, I think last year went about pretty close to as good as it could have gone results wise. So, you know, it was definitely very trendy, I think in years one and two for people to just crack wise about uh, the Dana Holgerson hire and, and, uh, and how that was going to work. But uh, you know, at this point, I think, again, you don't want to overreact to one uh, seasons of results, but certainly seems at this point like he has been hitting all the right buttons and has this program probably as, as the best place that it could be given all things considered. And I think the only thing I would add is that it all feels more sustainable. That's the word you coming back to sustainable. Like we all, I'm not going to lie. We were all really excited in 2015 and 2016. Tom Herman gets at Oliver gets a really awesome recruiting class, H-Town takeover, uh, if you can keep the best town in Houston, we're all, all of us, we're all probably varying degrees of pretty fired up about that, because that's something we've all said to each other. I think what Coach Holgerson has built here, though, is a lot more sustainable. You're seeing the staff bring in good talent, uh, not necessarily like high four and five star kind of guys, but you know they've been getting 
you know, good transfers. You know, Marcus Jones, who was a good player his first couple years at Troy, transfers up, ends up having an unbelievable year last year. Uh, Demarion Williams, I think something that gets overlooked is that the Applewhite staff quite literally left the Holgerson staff, not a single guy who was capable of being a Division One cornerback. Demarion Williams signs from Highland Community College. It's like, welcome, buddy. You are now the number one cornerback of this team, and you have to face C.D. Lamb and the absolute body bag 2019 schedule. And I think the staff has really proven now that we have three years to look at. They're good at evaluating you know, coaching talent guys who come through here like Doug Belk, Brian Early. We've seen a couple of uh, position coaches move on to some bigger-name programs, which I think is an endorsement of you know Holgerson hiring them in the first place. But you can tell. like it's This isn't a situation where you're going to every offseason, and, oh, Dana's getting rumored to go here, and this program really has his eyes on Dana Holgerson. And he's one of the very few Division One coaches when he says, I want to be here long-term and build at this place, and there's not really another job that interests me. He says that, and I actually mostly believe him. I really do think he wants this to be his last stop. He wants to you know, turn Houston into the program that he probably thought you know, 12, 13 years ago as a young OC that, you know, could be, that could compete with uh, the Big 12 programs in our footprint. And and again, you know, having, the Big 12 move hasn't, you know, seen U of H start recruiting on, you know, Oklahoma's level or the school in Austin's level, but we don't need to, because I think the staff's proven an ability to identify guys below that tier of recruit, either coming back as Division One transfers or out of high school. And you still did see a, you know, bump that you would expect to see from a team moving to a power conference with the 2022 signing class and with some of the guys who are apparently considering U of H pretty seriously uh, in 2023. So I think sustainable. And I think that's the the most exciting thing for me about what Holgerson's done here and what the long-term future looks like. I was going to say, I think there's probably not one like college football journalist guy that I would trust more to interpret coach speak than Stephen Godfrey. And I remember seeing him tweet a while back that he's like, oh, every coach says that they want to, that they, they want this to be their last job. They really want to really stay at this school. Dana Holgerson is one of like one or two, I think he said, that he actually believed it when he said it. It just it feels like the right cultural fit. And it is kind of like Sam said, just hard to envision him really leaving for another school when there's just so much cultural alignment, uh, you know, obviously with, with where he's at. And he just is, is, is clearly extremely uh, happy here. So if you are able to see that, you know, recruiting bump that we saw with the Big 12 membership sustain itself and even, you know, develop, then I think, like Sam said, the, the stability and the ability to envision this working out long term is uh, very tantalizing. And uh, with transition there, one thing I did want to circle back to, I mentioned in the first segment, um, and I can't remember who brought it up, but it, it, it was regarding the, the women's basketball team and um, where they stacked up in terms of spending. And I believe it was in the American Athletic Conference where they were towards the bottom. Um, and obviously coming off uh, this past season where um, coming into the season, they had pretty high expectations and, um, honestly, it was a bit of a roller coaster season where they they would have stretches where um, they really it, it seemed like they they couldn't string together you know any breaks and then they would have uh, stretches where they would look really good and they were kind of playing up their, their uh, up to their potential. A uh, day on you call a lot of their home games this season. Um, I mean you're you always we meet with uh, Coach Ron Huey before games. I'm curious to hear uh, Dustin and Sam's thoughts. What are your thoughts on the women's program and um, the decision, you know, now they're uh, now they're going to be a season before they jump into the Big Twelve. Really, what what can they? What do you see them being once they they join the Big Twelve? Because that's going to be a tough uh, conference to jump in and and kind of make a splash. 
I would just echo what Dustin said. I, I think long term, you know, with with more revenue coming in, the school needs to look at you know the Big Twelve is a great men's basketball conference. We could talk for another hour probably about what a great conference it is, but just as good on the women's side, you know, especially with the school in Austin and Oklahoma, you know, have their history, but the best women's powers in the league are still going to be there when we're, you know, a big 12 playing program. And I think for me, it really with this specific team to zoom back in a little bit though, it's about kind of capturing what the team did from November to early January. And then from March, or I would say maybe mid to late February on, because I think when it was all said and done last year, and you saw it, you know, bear out in the conference tournament, I think this was the third best team in the league. I think this was a better team than anyone that's not one of the two Florida schools. Yeah, I mean, you did, you saw them lose, you know, a lot of games that maybe, you know, I think against opponents that you have expected to be, you know, your Memphis's, uh, Cincinnati was pretty bad last year and you, dropped a game to them. So I think it's really just getting the consistency you know, that you saw the first month or so of the season, uh, just kind of doing that over the course of an entire year. I think Layla Blair, Layla Blair alone, I think is a reason to be really excited about this team. She showed herself for all the ups and downs of last year. She took a definite step forward from her freshman season where she was very promising to uh, last year. And I think just really, really exciting to see what you know, upperclassman Layla Blair, now program leader, can do along with a supporting cast that you know largely you return a lot of difference makers from last year's team. You know, do you get you know a bump from Tiara Young uh, for another year in the program? Does Bria Patterson really make a big leap? Because I think it wasn't a coincidence that the time Bria Patterson missed last year hurt was the worst basketball this team played. I thought she was a really critical player. Tatiana Hill, who's really flashed up in the low post for you. So I think it's just. It's getting it all more consistently. I, I think when the season ended last year, yeah, you looked back at conference play and thought, you know, this team could have played better at times, but you still saw a team, you know, a, a postseason team and a team capable, you know, on any given night of being a tough team to play. I think really it's you like what you have from Layla Blair, you like what you saw at times from Tiara Young and the players I just mentioned, but it's consistency and it's I think this is probably Huey's best defensive team his entire time here last year. It's now, it's getting getting that level on the offensive end because I think if this team if this is if this team performs in the offensive level, you know what we saw defensively last year. I think this is a tournament team, but there's a big gulf between where this team was at the end of the year and playing at that level. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like Sam said that the Big Twelve is such a competitive women's basketball conference. You just to be a decent in the middle of the conference competitive conference team you have to be a really good you know probably tournament caliber team houston hasn't been to the women's tournament in 11 years and yeah two years ago they were you know the last team out i guess so it's they were certainly very very close but you know this program certainly you know it's coach huey's been here with seven or eight years now um you know i, I think really has to that that big 12 membership is and it's gonna have to be investment from the athletics department as a whole as well i think it's not just uh it's not just coach you know you know pounding on the table and demanding that coach Huey get better results um but you know if houston wants to be competitive in women's basketball in the big 12 that's going to be that's going to mean finding a different level and finding it more consistently uh than than they have up until this point and they've you know i think just quite often had teams that you know just just have had a hard time the last couple of years i think really getting to the next level consistently you know, playing teams better than them, playing, you know, consistent NCAA tournament teams and just struggling at that level. So that's going to be who you're facing night in and night out in the Big 12. So um, I think it 
behooves this administration and the you know coach you they've gotten real close i think they've, they've shown some exciting things to build on i think there's not nothing to build on going into the big 12 certainly um but it is definitely going to demand another level of uh you know ability and output from this program that we you know have not seen yet up until this point Dan, i'll let you get the, the final word anything you'd like to add yeah, I mean, they pretty much touched upon it, but I, I think um, consistency, like you you guys said, within this next season, I think with the two guards that you bring back, Layla Blair, who I believe can be an All-American, will be an All-American, and, and Tierra Young, I think those two can be the best two-guard tandem in America next year, and potentially going into the Big 12. But like you, another player you touched on was Bria Patterson. When they went on a six-game losing streak, she missed all of those games. And she's that versatile player that jump starts the defense on the press who can guard pretty much one through five. But I think offensively she has to take another step with at least averaging 10 points per game. But she can shoot it from three, she can create, and she can score inside. So I think you're going to get more consistency with your two guards and primarily Tierra and Layla. I think both of them will have really big years together. I think Brittany Onyeje will take that next step with just being more consistent shooter as far as percentage-wise. Um, she did take another step as far as becoming better percentage-wise last year, but I think she can shoot maybe in that 40-point range and make over 100 threes in a season and with her defensive ability. So I think it really, like you guys said, it's just consistency. And with the talent, what they have, Nothing less of winning the championship next year because UCF, they lost their coach, Abe. She went to Georgia. Most of those players transferred out. South Florida is still going to really be, be really good. And we'll coach Fernandez down there. But I think that next year you have to consistently be at the top and potentially really win that conference. That's what my expectation from seeing what they have and what Coach Huey is doing. I'm expecting them to at least make it or be right there one and two with South Florida. And we're going to leave things right there. Um, this could very easily have been a two-hour episode, guys. Thank you for joining um, and taking the time just to talk UH Athletics. Uh, real quickly, I'll give you guys individual space to, to plug anything you guys want to plug. But uh, thank you guys again for joining us. Um, for those of you that, that would like to find their podcast at the Scott and Hallman Podcast, and you guys can correct me, I'd imagine it's available on uh, Spotify, Apple, anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can follow them on Twitter there at UC, the the, the at below, that's at SH Podcast, that's P-A-W-D-C-A-S-T on Twitter. Thank you guys again for joining, and uh, Dustin, Sam, the floor is yours. Is there anything you guys would like to add or, or say? Dustin, you're the, you're the, you're the podcast hype man. <laughs> I think I think Andy hit most of the highlights. There were degenerate Twitter users, so at uh, SH Podcast, give us a follow. Um, and yeah, wherever you get your podcasts, Scott Holman Podcast, do uh, weekly podcasts, all U of H sports year round. Uh, gonna even keep some content coming this summer. We had some stuff we're gonna got coming down the pipeline. That'll be a lot of fun. So check that out. And uh, just excited to be here talking to you guys and uh, spreading the good word of Cougar Athletics. And always glad to. Uh, you know, take part in any venue we can to uh, be talking about the Cougs because, you know, wasn't that long ago that there just wasn't uh, hardly anything out there uh, for Cougar athletics at all. And I uh, just love seeing the continued communities being built uh, around Cougar athletics. For sure. Dan, is there anything you'd like to say before we sign off? I would thank you guys for having us. Keep up the good work. I enjoy following you guys. You guys cover all Houston sports. So uh, it could have been a two-hour episode because I could have asked you guys about the track and the baseball who – 
the track has been consistently, yeah. and I think even going to the Big 12, they're going to really take a next step even more. And then the baseball had a good bounce back year. I think it was a big year for Coach Whiting. So we could have talked another hour for sure, man. We'll keep doing the great things. I definitely follow you guys. You guys definitely know your stuff. So that's one thing to talk about it. But that's another thing to really know what you're talking about. Y'all know for sure. You guys are too kind. Thank you so much. <laughs> and we'll leave it right there. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. That's Pod Slime Jamma, wherever you listen to your podcast. <laughs>